gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. Right, do take a seat, uh, turn back to 1 Corinthians 15, and Jonathan is going to come and read the rest of that before us. Starting at verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as an Adam all die, so in Christ will all be made alive. But each in turn... Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to, to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day, yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought, and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? 
How foolish. What, will, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a, it a body as he has determined. And to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another. And star differs from star in splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man Adam became a living being, the last Adam a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. We've come to our final uh, session, thinking about the resurrection together. Uh, where today we're thinking about the fact that death has been defeated we're thinking about death, which, as we start, we need to recognise is going to be particularly acute for some of us this afternoon. Some of us will be recently bereaved. Others of us, the bereavement is kind of further in the past, but it's particularly traumatic, such that it kind of lives on, with us ongoingly and probably won't ever really go away. For some of us, the topic of death is acute. For all of us, the topic of death is uncomfortable. As a society, we really don't like talking about death. We don't like using the D word. 
I remember vividly, so when I was at Bible college, uh, the principal of the college died suddenly from a heart attack, we think. In the weeks and months that kind of followed that, uh, I would be talking to various people, and they'd kind of ask that question, how is college since Mike? And then there was this really excruciatingly long pause, because they desperately didn't want to say died. They were hoping that you'd cut in and answer the question, so they don't have to say the D word. We don't like saying it. If that's a kind of anecdote, uh, here's a staggering statistic for you. Uh, according to the historical thesaurus, which I don't read regularly, um, there are over 1,000 different euphemisms in the English language for death. There are 1,000 different ways for us to say death, so we don't have to use the D words. Passed away, gone to a better place, kicked the bucket, and on and on we go. There are over 1,000. We don't like saying the D words. Actually, as a culture, it's not just that we don't like saying the word. We don't like, we don't like talking about or reflecting on the concept more widely. Uh, back to something else, when I was at college, uh, we had to write a kind of essay reflecting on a trend in culture um, and kind of reflect on that from a Christian perspective. Uh, what I ended up doing mine on um, was, before sporting events, if someone kind of famous or well-known has died, historically there was a minute's silence. Uh, if you watch as much sport as I do, uh, you'll notice that there's less silence and more applause. Instead of a minute to pause and reflect on the life that is gone, we, we celebrate by applauding the life that has passed. We celebrate the life rather than reflecting on death. Why is that? Because as a culture, we can't even stand for one minute, literally one minute, to stay silent and reflect on the reality of death. You can, there, there's various ways of showing that as a society we struggle to talk about death. One of them is the advent of something, I don't know if you've heard of it, it's called death cafes. Does anyone know what a death cafe is? Sounds grim, doesn't it? The concept is actually quite a healthy one and a good one, and it responds to a clear need in our society. So a death cafe is basically this group, it's a charity, kind of take over a cafe for an afternoon, and people come and talk about their experiences with death, you know, loved ones they've lost or fears they have about the future. Because we need some kind of organized, official time to do that. Because it would be completely unacceptable over the dinner table to just be like, I've just been reflecting on my own mortality. We can't do it. We can't talk about it. So there has to be this charity set up who take over cafes and allow you space to talk about it. As a society, we don't like using the D word. We don't like reflecting on death. We don't like talking about death. We don't really know what to do with it. And the problem is with death, it feels really far away until all of a sudden it isn't. It feels really far away until all of a sudden it isn't. I guess over the last six months or so as a church, we've experienced that. It feels really far away until all of a sudden it isn't. Our culture doesn't really know what to do with death anymore. And into the silence, God's word speaks. Into the darkness, God's word brings light. Into the hopelessness and despair, God's word offers hope to us. And I don't think there's anywhere that that, sh that hope shines brighter than in this chapter. We're not going to look at the whole chapter. We'd be here for the whole afternoon, at least. But I wanted the whole thing read just to reflect on just the wonderful hope that Paul gives us of a glorious future. We're going to pick out two big things from this chapter. And the first is this. Christians will rise like Jesus. Christians will rise like Jesus. I look down at verses 19 and 20. Let me read those. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, 
We are, of all people, most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Without the resurrection, we are to be pitied. We are pitiable people. Those driving past or walking past this afternoon should look in and pity us that we're wasting our time if Christ hadn't been raised from the dead. If our hope was only for this life, we are wasting our time. But, verse 20, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. And Paul tells us he's the first fruits. So imagine the vegetable patch or the allotment, that's the kind of image we're meant to have in our minds. You plant the seed, you water the seed, you water the soil, you water the plant, you wait, you wait, you fertilize, you do all the things you need to do. And eventually, finally, you get that first fruit. That first fruit is glorious for two reasons. One, because it's proved that that labor isn't entirely in vain because you've got something. But also it's glorious because it's a promise of what's yet to come. See, the first fruit is very rarely, if not never, the only fruit. The first fruit is a sign that a whole batch is coming. So it is with Christ's resurrection. It's not that Jesus is the only one who's going to be raised. He's the first, the first of many. And so Jesus' resurrection for us is the first fruits. It tells us what our resurrection will be like. That's what kind of verses 35 to 49 are doing. We're not going to look at that in any detail. But what's the big point going on there? Our resurrection will be physical because Jesus' resurrection was physical Jesus didn't rise from the dead kind of spiritually only and just kind of float around earth for a little while without a body. He ate and drank. He sat and he walked. It was a real physical resurrection for him. And so our resurrection will be real and physical as well. It's kind of pretty easy as a preacher to just have a pop-up Philadelphia adverts. It's the easiest thing to have about uh, heaven and what it's not like. We all know that heaven isn't like the Philadelphia advert. It is physical. It's not floating on clouds with harps and the like. But yet we need to be reminded that heaven is real. The new creation is a real physical place. We need to constantly be reminded of that because this life feels like the most real thing. And that feels like the surreal thing that we don't really get our heads around. The new creation is more real than this world ever is. It is more true to the way God has made the world. That is the real, this is the kind of poor substitute. Not the other way around. Our hope is not for something a bit better than nothing. Our hope is for something way better than what this life has to offer. That is where we're going. And we know that for sure because Jesus rose from the dead. His resurrection is a guarantee that we will rise too. Because if we are in him, so just as he has risen from the dead, so we will rise too. And that's why Paul has a particular euphemism that he likes to use for death. You see it three different times in this chapter. Verse 6, though some have fallen asleep. Verse 18, those who have fallen asleep in Christ. Verse 20, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul's euphemism for death is to fall asleep. Euphemisms tell us something. 
What is Paul communicating by that phrase? That it's not permanent. People don't permanently fall asleep. You all woke up this morning. Falling asleep is temporary. And so too, therefore, is death. Death is not the end. Death is the gateway to something much better. We will rise just as Jesus has risen. There's two dangers with the promise that Jesus, that Jesus' resurrection guarantees that we will rise to. One is bringing that promise into the present. And you do see some churches do this who kind of promise resurrection now, not in the kind of spiritual sense of we've been raised with Christ, but literal physical resurrection now. And they'll say things like, if you pray hard enough or if you have sufficient faith, that person who's died can come back to life. And they genuinely do say that. I've genuinely heard it, and it is pastorally devastating. Because if that person doesn't come back from the grave, which they almost inevitably don't, what that basically means is it's your fault they're dead. Because if you'd prayed harder and if you'd had enough faith, they wouldn't be dead. That is really, really dangerous. And God does not condone that kind of teaching. The promise of the physical resurrection is not one for now, it is one for later. Because, verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And death hasn't been destroyed yet. That enemy has not yet been destroyed. It will be one day, but it is not yet destroyed. And so until that day, we live with the reality, the painful reality of death. That's the first danger, that we bring the promise of physical resurrection into the present. The second danger, which is my guess is the one that we're all more tempted to fall into, is that we doubt that that really is a promise that's true. We doubt that we're really going to one day get a perfect new body. We doubt that this will actually do anything for us. We think it's more just kind of pie in the sky, and we will hope in it because, hey, it's better than hoping in nothing, but we're not really sure it's going to happen. So we kind of we, we, we put our, our kind of bank on it happening in as much as we vocalize and say that we, we believe it, and we do believe it, and yet at the same time, we're not kind of willing to fully commit to all of our hope being in that because we just have that niggle saying maybe it's not true. The fact that there is an empty tomb in Jerusalem that Jesus was once in shows us that it is cast iron certainty that we will rise one day too. It is not hopeful, wishful thinking. It is a certain promise that will happen for us one day. Christians will rise like Jesus. That's the first thing this chapter teaches us. I've got a couple of questions for discussion, uh, so head into groups for five minutes or so, discuss those couple of questions, and then we'll come back together for our second half. Great, if I break into uh, your discussions there. The first big thing we've seen, Christians will rise like Jesus. Here's the second, death's defeat is certain. Death's defeat is certain. Uh, look down at verses 54 and 55. Let me read those. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Just compare how Paul speaks about death 
to how most of us, and particularly our culture around us, speak about death. We're sheepish, slightly awkward, kind of avoiding the word, rather not talk about the concept. How does Paul talk about death? He celebrates. He sings. It's as if Paul is kind of taunting death. If you go to sporting events and the opposition are winning and then your team score and your team are suddenly either winning or drawing, you as fans start chanting at the opposition, you're not singing anymore. You're not winning anymore, so you're not singing anymore. It's as if that's what Paul's doing to death. You used to chant and sing because you were the victorious one, but Jesus has won. Death's defeat is certain, and so we can look death in the eye and celebrate. That's what Paul does. He looks death in the eye and he celebrates. Death is the most painful of enemies. It is an enemy. Paul describes it in those words. And yet, Paul says its defeat is certain. Its defeat is certain which makes sense if you kind of track where we've been. So we've spent the last four weeks as a fourth one looking at the resurrection and different ways it impacts us as Christians. If you track through that series, the first one we saw, the resurrection proves that Jesus has been declared just, that he's been justified, that he's been vindicated, and that means that death's power to judge is gone. Because those of us who are in Christ will not face that judgment anymore. Death's power to judge is gone. When Jesus rose from the dead, he was crowned as Lord and King and Judge. So death doesn't have authority to rule anymore. No authority to judge, no authority to rule. And for us who are in Christ, we have already been raised with him. So our old selves, who would have been subject to those things, have died. We have new selves. We have a new resurrection life now. Death has no power to judge no power to rule because we have new resurrection life. And because Jesus has been raised, we will rise too. Those who have been raised with Christ spiritually will rise with him physically. And so death has no power over us anymore. Death doesn't get the victory. We do. Because Jesus won the victory. The final say, when it all comes to pass, is not death's. It's Jesus's. And on that day, we will all be able to say, death has been swallowed up in victory. Uh, at the end of our service, we're going to sing these words. When facing death, I need not fear. I have this hope secured. Because Christ died at Calvary, sin has on me no claim. Because he overcame the grave, with him I will be raised. Death's defeat is certain. We don't need to fear it. We have a secured and certain hope as we come to that day. Because Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus has beaten death and he is the first fruits. Death has been kind of disarmed. It's yet to be fully destroyed, but it will be one day. It will be swallowed up in victory. And on that day, we will look at death and say, where is your victory? Where is your sting? Because it won't have any anymore. In the meantime, we will feel some of death's victory and sting as loved ones are taken away from us. But it's only temporary. 
So I wonder, how do you feel about death? How do you feel about death? Let's kind of break that down into two different categories. How do you feel about the death of others? How do you feel about the death of others? The death of others is undoubtedly sad. Paul is not kind of saying, well, when someone dies, it's all right, basically still be happy. They've gone to be with Jesus now, so we never need to shed a tear. That's not what Paul is saying. But if they are a believer, actually, as they face death and as we lose them for a while, we have hope. One of the early churches faced a problem, and that problem was that the gospel that Paul preached to them was that Jesus offers life, that Jesus will come back to to judge, and on that day when he comes back, all who put their hope in him will be saved. The problem that church faced is that people started to die, and that church had just been assuming that Jesus was going to come back in their lifetime. And so as their their friends and family started to die, and they were told that if you trust in Christ, he's going to come back and take you to be with him forever, their question was, well, what happens to our friends? What happens to our family, our loved ones? We thought they were safe, but now they're gone. That's the church in Thessalonica. And here's what Paul says to them in 1 Thessalonians 4. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. Again, sleep. So that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. So again, it's not don't grieve, it's don't grieve hopelessly. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Each one of them will be brought with Jesus at the end of time. They're not lost. We grieve, yes, because they're gone, but we don't grieve hopelessly. We grieve with hope. We grieve because we miss them, but we hope because we know they're somewhere better. That is the Christian hope. And grief with hope is a beautiful thing. Again, over the last six months or so, it's something that as a church we have seen time and time again. One of the privileges of being a pastor is that I get a front row seat to a lot of this kind of stuff. And seeing how the church responded to Peter and Alison dying was this all over. Yes, there was deep sadness. Yes, we miss them. And we still miss them. And we probably will continue to miss them for years to come. And yet... We didn't grieve as those with no hope because we know they're somewhere better. Yes, they are physically no longer with us, but they are with Christ, which is better by far. Grieving with hope is a distinctive thing that only Christians are able to do. Uh, Over the last couple of weeks, I've been reading a book. Um, It's called Seasons of Sorrow. Uh, let me tell you a bit about the story behind the book. So Tim Challies is a Canadian uh, blogger and writer, Christian. Uh, his son, who was 20, was off at seminary, kind of training to, to the ministry, playing with some friends outside, collapsed, died on the spot. No one knows why. He received that phone call late that night. Your son is dead. There's nothing we can do. We couldn't bring him back. 
What Tim Challies did is, a, as a writer, he processes by writing. That might be some of you. Um, I don't really. But what he did over the next year is he just wrote and wrote and wrote. Some of those got published as blogs. Some of them didn't. But then he put them together in a book. And this is basically what he wrote over the first year of his grief. Every time they hear that first, the first birthday with the son no longer there, the first Christmas, the day when he just woke up and out of the blue, grief hit him like a train. Time and time again, he just reflects on grief with hope. If you want to grasp what grief with hope looks like, I, it's a brilliant book. It's not an easy read. It's not a kind of light, cheery one, but it's great. It's very kind of, they're very short chapters because most of them were blog posts. Really worth reading if you're currently grieving and want to know what it looks like to grieve with hope if it's over the death of a Christian or to prepare you for the day when that will inevitably come. One quick caveat. I really don't like caveating books, but my only caveat, this will make sense if you read it. I think he over-idolizes marriage and I don't think that's particularly helpful in the way it comes across. There are a few times I read it when, if I was a single person, I'd probably be fuming that he's written that the way he was. Give him the benefit of the doubt. His child has just died. <laughs> but other than that, really excellent. Genuinely, really, really recommend it. We grieve with hope. We grieve with hope. How do we feel about the death of others? If it's the death of other believers, we grieve with hope. What about the prospect of our own deaths? How do we feel about the fact that unless Jesus returns in the next 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, maybe 70 for some of us years, how do we feel about the fact we're going to die? Well, we know the outcome already, don't we? John 11 tells us what the outcome will be. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me shall live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? The one who believes in me shall live, even though they die. Death will come. Until Jesus returns, death will come. But death isn't the end. Death is the gateway to something better. Do you believe this? Jesus asks. Do you believe that he is the resurrection and the life, that he has risen from the dead, that he is the first fruits, and so all who, who fall asleep in him will never die, though they die physically. Instead, they will live and live forever. Live forever in a place where there will be no more death or crying or mourning or pain. Live in a place that is so much better than what this world has to offer. We don't like thinking or talking about death, and yet the resurrection completely changes that. The resurrection means that we don't need to fear death because the, the best is yet to come. So unlike our culture that is terrified of using the D word, is terrified of talking about the concept, we can talk about death, we can be real about death, we can face the reality of it because we know there's something better. Uh, for those of you who are here 
for the first week of the series, I said my aim for the series was to convince you that resurrection is not like a cream egg. If that doesn't make sense to you, let me quickly explain why I did that. Basic headline, cream eggs are interesting at Easter and we forget about them the rest of the year because they're not in the shops. I think there's a danger we do that with the, with the resurrection. We get excited at the resurrection at Easter, we forget it the rest of the year. My aim over these four weeks was to convince you that the resurrection is not just something for Easter Sunday. It's not just something to be excited about one Sunday a year and forget it the other 364 days. Let me remind you how we've seen that. The resurrection, we saw in our first week, gave, gives us assurance of our status before God. As we fail to live up to the standards we know we are to live up to, we remember that we are justified in Christ and that Christ has been raised from the dead. God has already proclaimed that he is righteous, and so in him we are righteous too, regardless of the mistakes and sins that we commit. The resurrection gives us eyes to see who's really in charge of the world. So in our second week, we saw that Jesus rising from the dead is the moment where God appoints him as king and judge. Even though our world around us, it doesn't really feel like Jesus is in charge. It doesn't feel like he's winning. He is. The resurrection gives us the motivation and the means to keep battling sin. As we saw last week. When battling sin just feels so hard, we can remember that we have been raised with Christ. And as we set our eyes on the things above and set our hearts there too, we remember that resurrection life has already started and resurrection power is at work within us in our battle with sin. And we've seen that the resurrection gives us hope in the face of death. Our world has no hope at all in the face of death other than empty platitudes. That's not something we say gleefully. That is tragic. And yet the Christian hope is that Christ has defeated death and that we know that to be true because he's not in a grave. He's alive. And so Christians now, yes, death hurts, but ultimately we know that death will be swallowed up in victory. That Christ will win, that Christ has won, and that so death is not the end. Death is not a winner. Jesus is. There are some more questions for discussion. We'll do that for five minutes or so, and then we'll sing. I'm going to cut into your conversations, which I'm sure could keep going uh, for longer, and would be good to keep going for longer. Uh, do keep talking about these things. Uh, they matter, um, and God's word brings us hope and good news.